Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, for being a God who speaks to your people, that you speak to us in the world that is around us of your power and your greatness and your creativity and that you are God. But we thank you that in your Holy Scriptures you speak to us a word that is able to revive our souls, able to restore us back to you, able to give us hope and comfort in life and in death. And so, Lord, as we open your Holy Scriptures once again this morning, we ask that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We desire not to hear simply the words of a man, but we desire to hear our good shepherd speaking to us in your word. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this morning. Our rock and our redeemer, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people of God, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, I was going to preach actually this morning on the Gospel of Mark because that's what we're going through at Ontario URC, but I saw that Pastor Godfrey is in Mark as well and he's further than me, so I would have hit a text that you already were probably thinking about in the last few months. And so I did what I thought would please the Godfreys, which is they love preaching the Psalms. So we picked a Psalm this morning, Psalm 73, this beautiful Psalm of Asaph. We'll read the whole Psalm for our scripture reading. It's Psalm 73. It's the first psalm in book three of the Psalter. Book three is Psalm 73 through 89, really psalms that express for many of the, uh, the psalms a crisis of faith. And that's what we see here in Psalm 73 as well. May God now add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his, of his word. The word of God says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their heart overflow with follies, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Indeed, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, people of God, have you ever seen a movie or a show or read a book where the bad guy wins in the end or when he gets away? And I recently watched a show like this and during multiple seasons of it. And in the end, the people that I thought should prosper uh, didn't. And the people who were evil in the show got away. And it left me feeling uneasy inside. I think that happens when you watch a movie like that or read a book where it has that kind of ending. It makes you feel uneasy, even a little bit angry. And I think that's because deep down as human beings, we recognize that the righteous should prevail, the good guys should win, right? And the ungodly or the wicked should be cast down. And here in our psalm this morning, there's a believer by the name of Asaph, and he is sharing his struggles in the faith uh, because he is looking out into a world where he sees evil winning the day. You know, he looks into a world kind of like ours, and in his assessment, everything just seems backwards. Everything seems upside down, and this causes Asaph to doubt for a season, the goodness of God. You know, in the Psalms, there are many reasons why people are led to doubt God at times. In Psalm 10, we see that injustice could lead us to question God. In Psalm 13, we see that ongoing trials like persecution, our sickness, our battles against our sin can cause us to question God. Well, here in Psalm 73, uh, one of the chief musicians of Israel, one of the worship leaders, Asaph here, descends into doubt because he becomes envious of the wicked. He becomes envious of evil people who are prospering around him. And for a season, he wondered if it was truly worth it to follow God. Was it truly worth it uh, to live for the Lord when other people seem to have a better life? Beloved, we need to listen to a psalm like this. Whether or not we're in this season right now, all of us will go through times when we doubt the goodness of God, when the circumstances of our life don't seem to match up with the things that we read in God's Word. Today we want to think about how we could fix our eyes on Christ, especially in the midst of those doubts. And so first in this psalm, we're going to consider Asaph's descent into doubt, and then we're going to consider his ascent back to understanding and adoration. So first his descent into doubt, then his ascent back to adoration and understanding. Before we look at that descent into doubt, just look at verse 1 with me. You see there Asaph's initial profession of faith. What does he say? Truly, surely, God is good. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. See, Asaph begins here in a good place. He recognizes the goodness of God towards those who are committed to him. This is his confession. This is what he believes deep down in his heart as one of God's children. You see, in this psalm, Asaph is going to show us how he really came to believe this truth. It's one thing to confess the truth with your lips or to believe the truth intellectually, but it's another thing, isn't it, beloved, to go through certain trials in your life and to really experience the truth of God's word. To say after a long season of suffering or doubt or trial, God is good. And that's what we see Asaph 
doing here. You see, Asaph knows Psalms, like Psalm 1, which is very black and white, right? The evildoers, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. But the blessed man is like that tree planted by streams of water. In all that he does, he prospers. But notice, when Asaph's experience contradicts that truth of prospering, he begins to question God. And here we see in verse 2, that through the middle of this psalm, Asaph's descent into doubt. Asaph says, God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Asaph is not shy about sharing his struggles. He almost fell away from the Lord. He almost stumbled off the path of faith. Again, who was Asaph? Read 1 Chronicles 16. We read part of that in the call to worship. He was one of the worship leaders in Israel, appointed by King David to regularly bring the people of God before the Lord in worship. He was there before the ark of God to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord in his holy place. You could read of that beautiful song that Asaph would sing in 1 Chronicles 16 of God's faithfulness and covenant love and devotion. See, Asaph was a mature man of God, a worship leader, but even he struggled with doubts. Why was he doubting here the goodness of God? Well, one reason he tells us is because he became envious. According to the Oxford Dictionary, uh, to be envious is to be discontent or resentful inside because you want someone else's possessions, qualities, or good fortune in life. Right, as the saying goes that you've probably heard, comparison is the thief of joy. Right? When you compare your life and your circumstances, your health, your, your possessions with other people, you could find yourself growing discontent because perhaps other people have things that you want. And envy could slowly begin to create in our hearts this sense of entitlement even before God that we deserve better, that we should be treated better. Maybe we even criticize God for his care for us, his lot in life that he has given to us. Psalm 37 verse 1 warns us against this. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. But Asaph says here, look, I took my eyes off things above and I set them on things here below. And for a season, I became envious of the wicked around me. You see, envy could be blinding. It could take our eyes off of the Lord and create in us this discontent. But what does Asaph see? Verse 3, he sees the prosperity of ungodly people. The word translated here in verse 3 for prosperity is a word you might know in Hebrew, the word shalom, the word for peace. Right here, Asaph is looking out at ungodly people and they're experiencing shalom, prosperity, peace, good health, long life, good food, right? You go onto their Instagram and everything looks happy and good. They get to go to all the nice vacation places. They got all this beautiful food every single day. Their life is luxurious and they seem so happy and content. But not only that, Asaph says in verse 11, they're not only prospering outwardly and seem to have good long life, but they're mocking God and there's no consequences. You see that in verse 11? They're prideful, they're violent, they're scoffing at others and they say things like this, does the Most High see? Does the Most High see? You could read Psalm 73 
through 79, and you see lots of psalms of Asaph, and he, he has that similar refrain about how the wicked mock God, and they seem to get away with it. It's been said of Dionysius the Younger, that ancient tyrant in Sicily, that when he plundered the temple of Syracuse, and he sailed home safely with all his loot, he remarked, do you not see how the gods favor those who commit sacrilege? You know, sometimes we wonder, don't we, even as Christians, why do so many evil people seem to get away unpunished by God this side of heaven? Why do some abusers get away with their evil deeds? Why do so many ungodly politicians get to stay in office for such a long time? You know, why does the drunk driver get to walk away from the accident when the innocent family is killed? Why does that unchristian person who doesn't care about God get to live a long and happy life and that young Christian mom or dad gets cancer? Doesn't life seem backwards sometimes? Doesn't things seem upside down? This is what Asaph is wrestling with. Lord, if you're in control, then why are all of these evil people enjoying a good life and and why am I suffering? Uh, Asaph, see, he not only sees ungodly people prospering, but he sees devoted people to God suffering, feeling like they're cursed. Look at verse 14. It says, all the day long I am stricken and rebuked. You know, when we're struggling while others are enjoying life, it can lead us to be angry with God. Again, in verse 13, we hear Asaph's frustration and despair. He says, all in vain have I kept my hands clean. You know, something is vain, it's empty, or it's meaningless. And Asaph is wondering, why am I following God when it seems to profit me nothing? Ever felt that way? Paul writes in the New Testament, if Christ Jesus is not raised from the dead, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, it would be useless to live for God. But even though we believe as Christians Christ Jesus is raised from the dead, that he is seated at God's right hand, we could still feel at times like our efforts for the Lord are in vain or they're meaningless. Not too long ago when I was doing pulpit supply uh, in Canada, there was a lady at a church that I got to talk with who didn't have any children. Uh, She was married when she was close to 40, and she was frustrated, and she told me, you know, uh, I kept myself, bef- uh, you know, pure before marriage, and I had to wait a long time to get married. And then after getting married, uh, still waiting for God to bless me with kids. And I see all these people around me, friends and coworkers who, you know, seem to find a husband real quickly, and then they have kids real quickly. You know, what about me? And I remember she started crying, and she said to me, you know, what about me, Pastor? I'm trying to honor God with my life, and I seem to get nothing from him. Asaph here was on the edge of falling away because his experience in the world didn't match up with his profession of faith in verse 1 about God being good to his people. Beloved, in the Bible, you see, we're not only given black and white psalms like Psalm 1 or like the Proverbs that show us in general how the world operates, but we're also given texts like Psalm 73, We're also given books like Ecclesiastes and books like Job, which show us that life in this fallen world is not always neat and tidy, right? Sometimes bad people go free for a season. Sometimes the righteous and those devoted to God 
suffer. The famous G.K. Chesterton once put it like this, the real trouble with this world of ours is not that it is an unreasonable world, nor even that it is a reasonable one. The commonest kind of trouble is that it is nearly reasonable, but not quite. Life is not an illogicality, yet it is a trap for logicians. In other words, life, it's not utter random chaos, but it's also not completely predictable, right? It's not if you follow the right particular formula, it's always going to guarantee a certain outcome. And this is what Asaph is wrestling with. In verse 16, he says, when I sought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, right? When left to ourselves and our own thinking, our own philosophizing, our own trying to understand the deep things of life like this, we can get utterly exhausted. We're creatures. We're limited. And we're trying to connect the dots that only God can see. And the question is, how then do we receive comfort and insight when we find ourselves in these kinds of seasons of life? What are we to do? Verse 17, we see Asaph begin to find peace when he worships God, when he worships the God who is over all things. In verse 17, we begin to see Asaph's ascent back to understanding and to adoration. Our second point, Asaph's ascent into understanding. Notice verse 17, Asaph didn't come uh, to peace because he went deeper into himself to try to find the answers. He, he, he didn't find peace when he tried to make rational sense of everything that he saw. No, understanding and comfort took place when Asaph went to that place of worship where he was reminded of, of who God is where he was reminded of who he is and where he was reminded of the end of all mankind. Where did Asaph go? We're told he went into the sanctuary of God, verse 17. And what did he see in the sanctuary? Right in front of the holy place, right? In God's Old Testament sanctuary, he would have seen the altar for burnt offerings. He would have seen that place where there would be blood and charred animal pieces. It was a place of sacrifice. And that bloody altar reminds us of a few things, doesn't it? It reminds us of that New Testament truth in Romans 3, that the wages of sin is death. Yes, wicked people might be able to live it up in this life. They might be able to mock God and get away from it. But if you die without a substitute sacrifice on your behalf, you die in your sins. The wages of sin is death. But that place of sacrifice would also remind Asaph that truth that we heard in the New Testament as well. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we are reminded of this as Christians when we come to this place of worship. Like Asaph, we come to this place with our own doubts, our own struggles. And God continually brings us here to give us those new eyes that help us to see the world rightly. When we worship God, we submit ourselves to Him and to His revelation. When we praise the one who does know all things and understands all things and governs all things, then the light of His goodness and grace begins to shine upon us in our doubts and in our seasons of darkness. As one scholar put it, worship puts God at the center of our vision. And only when God is at the center of our vision can we see things 
as they truly are. How does worshiping God, beloved, help shape our perspective on life and give us understanding? There's a number of ways it does this. Verse 21 and 22, we see worship reminds us of who we are before God. Asaph says, for a season, Lord, I was ignorant and brutish towards you. I was like a beast. You think of Job saying a similar thing. Like Asaph here, he was humbled as he saw his condition as small before the Almighty. He essentially says, Lord, I was so foolish. I was like a beast, right? My head wasn't lifted up to heaven. It was just on earth. I was just horizontally focused. I was judging life simply by things that I could perceive. I was without true understanding, Lord. We felt that way too as Christians at times. You ever felt in your heart, you know, bitterness and anger rising up as you're just looking out into the world, comparing yourself with other people? But when you begin to pray, or when you begin to read God's word, or when you be able to go sing a, a song of praise, or you be able to listen to a sermon, you find your heart again growing soft and humble as you recognize the greatness of your God once again and who you are before him. See, beloved, we envy other people because we forget the greatness of our God and his provision. Our eyes are horizontally focused and not vertically focused. And so we begin to find ourselves discontent and envious and struggling. But worship reminds us of who we are before our great and loving Father. Asaph shows us as well, worship reminds us of God's judgment. And Asaph was there at the altar a place of justice. And he said in verse 18, Surely you set them in slippery places. Again, things are not all that they seem. It's not always good to try to read providence when times are tough. right? You might interpret things wrongly. You might say to yourself, I'm suffering affliction. I'm going through this trial. It must mean that I am loved by my God. But things, again, are not always what they seem. The wicked who are prospering, according to the psalm, are actually standing on slippery ground. They're in a dangerous spot. They're on a shaky foundation. It's like they're having a party right next to a cliff, and they don't recognize they're about to fall off into destruction and ruin. Therefore, Proverbs 23, verse 18 says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord. All day, surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Worship reminds us of God's judgment. Third, worship reminds us of God's nearness. Listen to how beautiful Asaph puts it throughout this psalm. Lord, you are continually near me. You hold my right hand. You lead me with your counsel. Verse 23. These are not just future blessings for the child of God, but these are present realities and benefits that every Christian enjoys, that we worship a God who is with his church to lead us, to protect us, to guide us. Last week, when our kids are on Thanksgiving break, we went hiking at Mount Baldy, which is you know, 30 minutes from our house, and our kids love to go hiking. They're very adventurous little kids, but my seven-year-old boy definitely gets nervous on those places of the hike where it gets real narrow, and there's not a little uh, fence to protect, so he asks to hold my hand, and I always hold his hand in those spots, but he's always, you know, still nervous, and he needs that reassurance. You got me, Dad? You got me, Dad? And I have to continually remind him, hey, Daddy's got you. I'm not going to let you fall. And 
This is the kind of imagery that Psalm 73 has of God for his church. This is not the God of deism who just created this world but who's far away doing his own thing. This isn't some impersonal force that's just guiding the world to some chaotic end. But this is the covenant God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the God who is near to his pilgrim people in every single age to uphold us, to guide us, to sustain us. This is Jesus who says to his church, I am with you even to the very end of the age. And as New Testament Christians with fuller revelation than Asaph had, we celebrate this even more, right? We see that Jesus, our Savior, came near to us during the Advent season, that he was tempted like Asaph to doubt the goodness of God. Like Asaph uh, of old, in Eve of old, Satan tempted Jesus to doubt the goodness of his father. He tempted him to take another path to blessedness. He said, just bow down to me, And all the kingdoms of this earth will be yours. But Jesus, all throughout his life, beloved, trusted in his Father's provision and goodness. And the cross reminds us, the cross of Jesus reminds us that God knows how backwards this world can feel at times. Right? Was there ever a time in the history of this world when things were more backwards than when the Son of God was there hanging on a cross, even though he was innocent of all crimes, even though his hands were truly clean. Right In the history of our world, there's only one truly righteous man who was stricken and smitten by God, and it wasn't Asaph, even though he felt that way in this psalm, but it was Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, and he carried our sorrows. He was stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. Jesus was the only righteous man who deserved all prosperity, but instead he willingly took the curse that was upon you and upon me, upon himself, so that we might not only be reconciled to God, but that we might know in every season of life, God will be near to us. And now the risen Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, tells his church that your labors for me are not in vain. Even though they might feel that way, it is worth it to follow me because I am raised from the dead, Jesus says. I am the first fruits of a holy harvest that is to come. And so worship in this place reminds us of God's nearness, that it's worth it to follow Jesus. Fourthly here, worship reminds us that ultimately in this life, God is our treasure. God is our treasure. Yes, ungodly people might have many material blessings, maybe that we don't get to enjoy, but God is the treasure of his people. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In other words, Asaph is saying, let wicked people enjoy all their stuff. It all has an expiration date, but I have a treasure that will never fade away or grow old. Beloved, God is the treasure of his people. God is the strength of his people. Christians, this side of heaven, might not always prosper materially in this world, but as we sing, solid joys and lasting treasures belong to Zion's children. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And he said in chapter 3, verse 8 of Philippians, I count everything as loss. All of those material titles and blessings, he says, I count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth, worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. God is enough for us. He's our treasure. That's why we sing and Wonderful hymns like this. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only are first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. When I was pastoring in Canada, there was a young man by the name of Jonathan uh, in one of our churches who died in his 20s. He was a man who uh, suffered uh, muscular dystrophy which is an awful disease that uh, results in the slow breakdown of all of your skeletal muscles over time. And at the end of Jonathan's life, he could only move uh, his fingers, uh, just a couple of them at the end of his life. But in the final year of, of Jonathan's life, he made profession of faith before the church, and he found great joy in God in that final year of his life. And on the day that he died leading up to it, uh, I think he knew that God was going to take him home soon because he sent texts out to all of his family to come near to him, to sing and to pray. Sent texts to his friends asking them to, to pray. And he spoke about how he had peace, that he knew he was soon going to be with his God. And this is the kind of, of comfort and confidence that God gives to his children. This is what Asaph speaks about here in verse 26. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, when we come to worship in this place, when we hear the word of God, when we hear of Christ, we're reminded that he's enough for us. That in God, we have everything that we truly need, right? That we have everything that we truly need in our Savior. Beloved, no matter what trials God has you going through today, no matter if your body is winding down and it's failing, the comfort of this psalm is your comfort if you trust in Jesus, that God is your portion. He is the strength of your heart, and he's your portion forever. Finally, beloved, as we begin to conclude, worship not only reminds us of all those wonderful things, but worship reminds us that we have a future Asaph says, you guide me with your wise counsel, and afterward, verse 24, you will receive me into glory. You see, the ungodly person might enjoy their best life right now, but the end of their life, if they don't trust in Jesus, is destruction. And in comparison to glory and to eternity, it's just a few short moments of temporary joy. But for the Christian, although our days are a mixture of joy and sorrows, we're headed to a place of blessedness beyond all imagination. This is what the Bible calls glory, glorified existence with our God in a glorified new creation. And even now, our light and momentary afflictions, Paul says, are preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this is why we can say, by faith with Asaph. Truly, God is good to his people. Even when life seems backwards, God is near to us to uphold us, to protect us, to lead us all the way to glory. We may have real doubts this side of heaven along the way like Asaph, 
But when those dark days come, beloved, may we not search within ourselves for the answers and trying to connect the dots, but may we worship our God who knows all things and remember that in Him we have everything that we truly need. See, at the end of this psalm, Asaph comes full circle to his original confession. He starts by saying, truly God is good to Israel. And at the end, again, he says, it's good to be near to God. Indeed, beloved, may we to leave this place fixing our eyes on things above, on our God who is good, who promises to be with us even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you so much for uh, psalms like this and texts that remind us that uh, we're not alone as we turn on the news and look out to a world that seems so backwards at times. But we see that your people of old have wrestled with these things and by your grace have come to fix their eyes on their covenant Lord who is faithful. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to do the same this morning, that we would fix our eyes upon you, that we would know that you are the strength of our heart and you are our portion forever. And help us to remember, Lord, that nothing in this world can satisfy that deep longing of our hearts, but only Jesus can satisfy that. We thank you that he is enough for us, that he is the bread that doesn't leave us hungry. He's the living water that doesn't leave us thirsty. And so help us to come to him. We thank you that we could be reminded of that now, even in your holy sacrament. Would you confirm our faith and assure us of your love? We ask this in Jesus' name.